Welcome to Tachlis Talks and the second in our series on Pirkei Avos. If you missed our intro, go search for that episode. That was our episode of just a few days ago where we gave a brief introduction as well as opening the very first paragraph, the very first Mishnah of Pirkei Avos. We're going to continue today, actually, within that very first Mishnah, at least for the first few minutes. We went as far last time as addressing Moshe Kibel, Moshe as the recipient, and what that means in terms of why Moshe, his humility, and the whole idea that our ethics, our moral behavior is dependent on recognizing that we are receivers from a grand source of wisdom, that of course being God. I'm going to address just another element within this Mishnah for starters today, and that's the next words after Moshe receives the Torah, um and he gave it over. Masora, the term of the tradition, that which was given generation after generation, and Moshe gave it over to Joshua, and Joshua gave it over. The mission describes next series, and it continues until the Anshei Knesset Hagdola, the men of the great assembly, those are the sages of the high court of Israel at the time of the beginning of the second Beis HaMikdash. So that's a spread from Moshe till that Anshei Knesset Hagdola we're talking about through the period in the desert through our first hundreds of years in the land of Israel under what we call the Shoftim or the judges, through the period of the kings and the great prophets of Israel, through the exile, which has us in Babylon and Persia and the Purim story, and now back to Israel at the time of the great assembly. And then each subsequent paragraph moves us a generation further, so that by the time we are halfway into this chapter, We've moved another several hundred years. We've gone through the whole period of the second temple. That's first temple stood 410 years, second temple 420 years. We've gotten to the point of the destruction of the second temple. We're going to meet personalities like Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, the great um, editor of all of Mishnah, and he is already several hundred years post-destruction, or I should say a few generations post-destruction, and they're by we've gone from the Sinai experience oh, way over a thousand years uh, into the end of the second and post-second temple period. This idea that this transmission, that each generation, a leader passed it to the next generation, well, what, what does this mean? Moshe taught far more people than just Joshua. He taught all of us all of the Torah. And Joshua, we would expect, taught the Torah to the masses as well. What is being described in this Misarah, he gave it over. And Rambam, in instruction to one of his major works, describes there's a chain where each generation, a leader, chooses another individual to be the leader of the next generation and to pass along the entirety of Torah. He's teaching many, many people. But there's one individual who's going to be responsible to serve as that bridge between the upcoming generation and the past generation to know that all of the Torah that was known to the past generation is going to get to the next generation. All of it, absolutely accurate. And this is the role that Joshua is playing and the various other individuals we are describing in our Mishnah and the upcoming text. Now this idea that the full body of Torah, that means clearly the written Torah, well, that's finite and that is measurable. We can see that we have the accurate text of the written Torah. Double check as every sofa even to this day does before 
disseminating a Torah before publishing his text for the Torah. He has to verify it against a text of a known-to-be-accurate Torah. That's the written Torah. And then the oral Torah, all of those traditions which coupled the giving of the Torah, the immeasurable amount of information that is there to make the written Torah fully understandable and to have it address all of the various cases that will come up throughout history, that information was passed along as well. And it begs the question, this is being done orally for the first many, many generations because we described Rabbi Yehuda HaNasi far, far down in this chain past the destruction of the first temple, past the destruction of the second temple. He is the one who is collecting all the information and putting the Mishnah into writing for the first time. And then generations after that, the rest of the Talmud in the form of the Gemara that's being written down. How do we know that they got it right? How do we know that they didn't lose a lot of the information along the way? How do we know that information wasn't corrupted along the way? Very important question because we base our Jewish practice, we, we base our understanding of law often in situations that will radically impact behavior, radically impact life and death decisions based on the accuracy of this misora, of this tradition. If you give a piece of information to one individual and ask them to pass it along a chain 10 steps down the way, if you ever play the game of what do you call it, operator or broken telephone, very rare that the information comes anything other than quite convoluted by the time you get to the end of that chain. So how do we differ from that very common breakdown of information and the accuracy of our Masora? And I highly recommend this um, a phenomenal PowerPoint video on the website simpletoremember.com. That's a site I often send people to, and they often come back. Was it hard to forget? No, the name of the website is simpletoremember.com. A very large array of lectures and videos on matters of important Jewish knowledge. And on simpletoremember.com, there is a PowerPoint. If you search for the name of um, Kellerman, Rabbi Lawrence Kellerman, on that site, he has a PowerPoint on the Oral Torah. There's quite a few great, great um, seminars on there, but this particular PowerPoint on the Oral Torah, I'm going to summarize in about three minutes something that he does very elaborately on that video, but I'm going to introduce it first by asking you to think about what would you do if you had some very, very important information that you needed to pass 10 steps away from yourself orally that you had to give it to A, to give it to B, to give it to C, to D, and you had to know that the recipient, 10 steps down the chain, would get the right information. What would you do if this was a critical recipe for a preserving a family tradition that can't get lost? What would you do if this was a critical formula for a medical remedy to a malady that that person 10 steps down the chain has, but that for whatever reason, cannot be put down in print and must be preserved orally. And I've done this with um, some of my classes, and people come up often after thinking about this with a lot of the very important factors. Well, number one, make sure that whoever you're sharing this with has both the cognition, 
the capacity to understand what it is that you are saying and to remember what it is that you are saying and that he or she are going to choose similarly gifted individuals to be the recipients and the conduits for transmission of that information. So number one is the capacity to absorb, master, remember, and articulate to the next step down the chain. Another important step is that they have to value the information. It doesn't help if they are going to have the capacity to memorize it if they don't care to. But if they have to value the information, they have to understand why I must see to it that the next person in the chain has this accurate, with the information I have accurately so that they continue the chain accurately. I understand what's in store for that person number 10, why they need to value this, why they need to have this information and I value it as such. A passion for the accuracy of that information would be a big boost. A degree of corroboration. When you pass it down the chain, don't share it with only one individual and have him or her have no means of sharing the information with others. But even before they pass it along the chain, if they can share with others and then remind each other of that information and come back to you for verification before they have the permission to share it, they have double-checked with you, oh, do I know this? Am I, am I sharing this accurately? What Roy Kellerman does in that PowerPoint video is he describes how he took a group of young women in Israel. He did it first with a large convention in, in California, a teen convention, and then with a large group of seminary students in Israel, or girls on a summer learning program. And he had a variety of teams. I believe it was 10 teams, with numbers not so relevant right now. Let's imagine it's 10 teams with 10 young women in each team. And he gave each of the first in the group of 10 seven rather obscure verses of Torah in English. So it wouldn't be something they remembered hearing in the synagogue at the Torah reading. Obscure material related to temple practice and seven such verses that they had to pass down a chain, 10 steps down the chain, to a recipient at the end. And if they would get the information right, if each of the 10 at the end of the chain would have the information correct, everybody on the team gets ice cream, free ice cream. Hey, people do a lot for, for free ice cream. If they get it wrong, if any member of any team gets it wrong, they would be embarrassed in front of a group of 100 people that would come as the audience to observe this process. And they understood that they would be challenging the veracity of our entire tradition of Torah because, oh, if this didn't work, why should I trust that the Masorah is accurate? Yeah, these young women have to do the following. Each, let's say it's 10 teams of 10, each number one, after hearing the information, would convene with all the other number ones and corroborate, make sure they really believed that they all had the same information. And only once they got to a point that if there was any discrepancy among them, they would have to determine by a vast majority, no, 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 this is what he really said for that verse, and come back, come to a point of conclusion, okay, we're pretty sure these are what the seven verses are. Once they did that, they would have to go back to the source who provided them the information and verify, do we really have it right? If they get the yes, the equivalent of the ordination, you know what you're talking about, you have permission to pass it on to number two, that information would be shared with all of the number twos in the chain, who would then corroborate with each other 
and once getting to the point of agreement that they really believe they know what the seven verses are, they'll go back to the number ones for the ordination, verification. Pass it down the chain. Absolutely all ten, number tens, got the seven verses correct word for word. But he does it a lot more dramatically. Check out on simpletoremember.com under his um, topic on on the oral uh, Torah, the oral tradition. Now, this idea of Mesorah, generation after generation, securing, making sure they had secure um, understanding of what the information was and then passing it on generation after generation. That's beginning over here with Moshe, after he's Kibel, with his humility, accepting the Torah, mastering the Torah as that incredibly important body that he has to preserve every detail and determine the accuracy before passing along, he then does so to Yoshua and down the chain. Now, over time, for a variety of reasons, mostly related to exile and, and, and breakdown of our communities, Torah had to be put down into written form, the oral Torah, and more and more of it into written form, and the degree to which we rely on the accuracy of the oral Masorah, far less, but we stunningly can point to a chain of tradition that goes past this series in Perkeavos, not just from Moshe, down to the generations following the destruction, through the Talmudic period, through the period we know as the period of the Gaonim in Babylon, of the uh, 9th, 10th, 11th century, through the period of the Rishonim, like Rashi and Rambam, getting us into the 11, 12, 1300s, and we have a chain that we can point to Ray Kellerman actually has published this as well. And if you want copies, send me an email at tachlascoaching at gmail. I can send you back a, a listing that goes from Moses to you. Because it goes down to me. And if you're listening to me right now, then you've helped preserve the next step of the chain. You're another link. And we have an unbroken chain of teacher to student, teacher to student, not of those who've mastered everything. I for sure have not. But the connectivity back to a teacher who learned from a teacher, who learned from a teacher, who learned from a teacher that brings us back to the period of the Mishnah and ultimately to the period of Sinai. That is rather unique to our Mesorah, our tradition, and our body of knowledge of Torah. That said, we've touched upon this very opening of the Mishnah. I want to talk about one or maybe two more elements within the first chapter of Perkei And again, the goal was that we've touched elements of the first chapter this week so we can move on to the second chapter and be uh, in sync with the rest of the Jewish world that will be uh, studying the second chapter this coming Shabbos. But uh, two more points just to look at very briefly within the first chapter. One, the mission describes, just a few missions past the opening, that we should not be serving God as a servant who is serving unconditional kabel pras. The word pras, often translated as reward, but related to the word prize. And uh, I'm doing this, am I doing my mitzvah because you're giving me something? And I'm, in that sense, uh, demanding that. And that's my, my motivation is the reward, is the prize, or am I doing the mitzvah because it's a mitzvah? It's because of what you've commanded. And we should not be serving God unconditioned to get the reward, but as if there is no reward. But, as my uh, Rosh Hashiva, one of my great mentors of blessed memory, Rabbi Yaakov Weinberg, uh, would often point out, 
The mission is not saying that we should not believe that there is reward because we must believe that there is reward. Rambam, Maimonides, in his 13 principles of faith, 13 fundaments, any one of which lacking, he believes we are fundamentally flawed in our Jewish perspective. In that list of 13, number 11 is to believe that God is a gomel tov, he's a provider of good. He provides reward to those who do what's right. And he's ma'anish, and he punishes those who do what's wrong. Rav Yaakov Weinberg would stress that Rambam is saying it's fundamental to recognize that there is reward and punishment, and he would ask why. If I know that there's a God, why is it fundamental for me to believe that there's reward and punishment? And he would point to the fact that if I believe that there's no reward and punishment, I have decided that God doesn't care. Think about it. Think about a child's relationship with a parent. And that reward and punishment can be far more subtle than the fact that I give you a bonus as an, for your allowance or that I uh, send you up to your room. Reward can also be a smile. A punishment can be a frown. How does it feel to be a child with a parent where there's no reward or punishment for my behavior or misbehavior? Hey, Dad, can I have the car keys, take the car out tonight? Okay, just make sure you're back by 10.30. Okay, and now I come back at 11.15 and walk in the house, no reaction. Okay, that feels pretty good. Hey, Dad, can I have the car keys? Yeah, just make sure you're back at 10.30. This time I come back at 12.15 a.m. and I have alcohol on my breath and I'm staggering a little bit and I almost trip over dad uh, walking through the living room and no reaction. Hmm, a little strange. Hey dad, can I have the car keys? Yeah, just be sure to home at 10.30. This time, I drunkenly come crashing through the garage door at 4 a.m. and no reaction. Is that a dad? Does he care? If, if there's no reaction, if there's no positive or negative reaction, there's no relationship. And it's fundamental to recognize that there's reward and punishment. God wants to provide us reward. God is eager to dole out reward to us. But, the mission is saying, we should not be motivated exclusively by their reward. That's not what's pulling us. What's pulling us is not what we get out of it. We should be appreciating that God wants to give us reward. We should appreciate that God cares about us enough that he wants to give us reward. We should appreciate that, and that should be motivating us. That God loves us, and we love him. And we want to be acting as part of this relationship with him. But not, oh, because what type of benefit am I going to get that's going to enhance my self, my being, in terms of even if we're measuring this very properly in terms of spiritual reward and the world to come, but again, we're not using that as the, as the motivation and the drive, but we are fully cognizant of that, which allows us a deeper, deeper um, relationship, and our motivation ends up being on a deeper level. And we're motivated because there's a God who cares enough to want to give us reward whether he's given me a reward or not. One last point with which we will um, close the first chapter of Pergeavos for this go-round, and that's I want to look at a mission later on. Many of the printings is probably number six of this chapter. 
And very briefly, we have the Mishnah describing three elements. Make for yourself a teacher. Acquire for yourself a friend. Not a Facebook friend, a real friend, the real thing. And judge everybody favorably. Okay, the first two we understand. It's, uh, find yourself the mentor. And do what it takes. Invest the energy to have a friend. We have a real deep friendship that can allow somebody who's ready to criticize you when you do something wrong, not out of anger, but out of, hey, come on, don't let yourself down this way. Somebody who has your back and is ready to act as if he has your back in, in, in ways that sometimes may be a little bit tough because he really, really, or she really, really does care and is not going to let you get away with self-destructive behavior, whether it's failing your diet or failing your, uh, your emotional best interest or your, your financial best interest. Acquire, put the energy to have a real friend. The last part, and judge everybody favorably. Have you done as kol adam l'chav the Ruach Chaim, Rav Chaim of Elazhen, in his commentary on Perkelos, says this last part is a necessary ingredient for the earlier parts because if I don't judge people favorably, I'm going to be quick to dismiss that friend. I'm going to find fault in what he or she does or doesn't do for me, what he or she does or doesn't comment, what he or she doesn't, does or doesn't show up to my birthday party, whatever that is. If I don't develop the positive trait of judging favorably, I'm likely to end up failing in really acquiring a friend. I'll likely lose the friends that I worked hard to acquire. And it goes further than that. This can even apply to the mentor. Because if we aren't ready to judge favorably, if you don't develop that attitude, we tend to have the opposite attitude of being critical and quick to find, again, the flaws. And I can't have him be my mentor. I can't have him be the authority I turn to. Look, he isn't so great at behavior A, B, C, D, or E. And when I have the negative attitude, that negative I, I will fail to manage to ever have that Rav, to ever have that teacher, because I will find fault with everybody. So have the positive I towards people, which will allow developing the friend and not being quick to lose the friend and developing the teacher without being quick to lose that teacher can serve us very well. We're going to hold over here and in our next episode, hopefully be in the second chapter of Perkei Avos. Everyone should have a wonderful Shabbos, hopefully a chance to go through the second chapter sometime over the Shabbos and we'll shed more light on that in our next episode.